What I feel is most important is not that everyone agrees with our politics, but that we need to have more conversations about it. I believe that if you put two heads together, you don't get twice as many good ideas, you get like 10 times as many good ideas. And if you put 10 heads together, you get like a million times as many good ideas. That is really the message that I want to tell to people. Hello, and welcome to Farm On, the podcast, where I get to speak with agriculturists, artists, and activists on the front lines of today's food movement. I'm your host, Joe Phillips. Have you ever heard of Mesoamerica? I'll be honest, I was clueless about the place until I stumbled on the work of today's guest. Mesoamerica is a cultural and geographic region that forms a thin land bridge, or isthmus, between North and South America and the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans and it is one of the most biodiverse areas on the planet. Mesoamerica is also a megadevelopment free trade disaster zone, a conduit for extractive industries from the global south to the global north, a monopoly board for international banks, a justification for CIA profits thanks to the ongoing so-called war on drugs, a militarized zone, a roulette wheel where corporations spill blood for bananas, Mesoamerica is caught between the trade winds of the dark north cloud that rains down violence, toxins, and cultural thievery, and the hurricane of the climate change south that rips through already marginalized communities, opening the door for disaster capitalism. The global east spews a typhoon of mass production, while a whirlwind of disposable consumerism gobbles it up in the global west. King Kool-Aid sails down the crowded seas, dumping slavery-made sugar into every processed food in the grocery, while the Burger King beef boat tows a few thousand acres of clear-cut farmland and leaves in its wake massive deforestation due to the rampant cattle ranching. And in a twisted version of Noah's Ark, exotic animals snared after such deforestation are shipped, far from their native habitat, replaced by cute, fuzzy, animatronic icons of the mass media. Mesoamerica is drenched in pesticides and then greenwashed under the guise of conservation by the private sector, while the World Bank plays poker with loans sprung to life by economic bear traps. Mesoamerica receives gifts from the North in the form of military weapons wrapped with a bow. And that's just the first one-third of a monumental graphic called Mesoamerica Resiste, meticulously researched and hand-drawn over the course of nine years by the Beehive Design Collective, a loose conglomeration of anarchists who dedicate themselves to cross-pollinate the grassroots by creating collaborative, anti-copyrighted images for use as educational and organizing tools. To see a web version of the explosive work Mesoamerica Resiste, including a full-screen flyover with narrative tour, click the link in the episode and get ready to get drawn into a very deep rabbit hole. The collective remains anonymous by choice, but I was lucky enough to sit down with one of the group's members, who goes by the name of Tyler B. Since he met with me in between trips to Mexico, I started by asking Tyler B. about the challenge of balancing a worldwide network of activism while at the same time remaining dedicated to the hyper-local issues that fuel the group's mission. I hope you enjoy it. About a lot. And there's, there's definitely challenges involved in that, um, but our... Uh, it's always been of high priority to all of us who, who've been involved in this work to be doing work at both the local and global sort of scale. So mass producing posters that tell stories using pictures, which means they transcend language ba- barriers, mm-hmm. is clearly global scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but each one of us, even within our 
now more decentralized network, each of us is doing uh, work and organizing in our home places. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And home for I, you these days. Yeah, is... that, well, I was, I was about to say, for me, I'm probably... Uh, and I sometimes regret this. At the moment, I'm probably doing the least of that sort of local work because I've been traveling so much yeah, that I don't that, that I don't too. have a very yeah. very clear home base. Yeah. Um, but what I have been doing is, in a more regional way, mm-hmm. I've been building uh, networks and connecting and interconnecting people all around the Great Lakes region and Greater Midwest, cool. and cool. Um, and that's been my priority. Is that I see great movement building potential mm-hmm. in my role as we like to call ourselves cross pollinators mm-hmm, right mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. a lot of metaphors yeah with, uh, the, with the bees yeah, yeah totally yeah, yeah. Yep. i love the ants too uh, like me too i also ants. really yeah awesome yeah that's one of my favorite things about that graphic the ants it's are really the, inspiring uh, because it's also it's always about the strength that comes um not only with simple mass numbers but mm-hmm. diversity mm-hmm. is like really key uh, yeah, I love it. The bees. There's not just honeybees in here. There's the bees that pollinate the... Um, Which one? The vanilla flower? That vanilla. One? Yeah, yeah, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And within the ant population, there's like 20 different species of ants. I think it's more like 70, actually. <laughs> yeah. 70, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just yeah. throw it out of Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that, that idea that like there's this unified mm-hmm. uh, diversity. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. it's, it, that's at play in the, in the artwork. Um, so we're in Chicago right now. Um, recording, but you just came back from Mexico. Yeah, I just spent a little bit of time in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually went there to visit one of my friends from the school in India. Oh, cool. I hadn't seen him in 14 years. Wow. So like almost half of our lifetimes. Wow. And so it was really cool to reconnect. Yeah. He was, uh... A, f- a fellow lefty mm-hmm. um, in India. He was the first person who ever told me about the Zapatistas. Mm-hmm. This was back in 2001 when they were still really new. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it was really fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. And Is he Mexican? That's right. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And nowadays he's he's still just like I remember him. Very romantic. He's a poet. He's mm. He makes shadow puppet theater. Uh-huh. Um, he's extremely... Uh, uh, active in doing solidarity work with indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. He's learning the local indigenous language. He runs a community center, cultural center. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I went to hang out with him for a few months, uh, work on some shadow puppets, uh, which was really fun, art projects. Uh, I was uh, refreshing my Spanish mm-hmm. because I lost it after years of not practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, and for various reasons, I, I have some hopes to to um, to actually do some uh, some teaching at a at a forthcoming international school uh, cool. in Colombia, so cool. I need to study up. Nice. And then d- I also sh- did a lot of beehive presentations while I was there. Cool. Obviously, the mm-hmm. stories in the Mesoamerica Resiste graphic mm-hmm. are extremely relevant in southern Mexico, mm-hmm. uh, and. Even though Mesoamerica... Includes Southern Mexico. Oh, it does include mm-hmm. Southern Mexico. Mm-hmm. Right, got yep. you. Because it's really the connecting isthmus It's It's the skinny Mexico, isthmus, yeah. Mm-hmm. Between Mexico and uh, South America. That's right, mm-hmm. yep. Uh, and then also what I ended up spending a significant amount of time doing was 
helping to uh, do some earthquake recovery work mm. in Morelos oh, after right. the second earthquake. Yeah. I, I wanted to go to Oaxaca to help after the first earthquake. I couldn't make it there because for two weeks I just got one illness after another. But then there was another earthquake and it was closer by and so I went to help there. I spent three weeks and then returned again uh, a little bit later and that caused me to stay in Mexico for uh, like a month longer mm -hmm. than I had originally planned. Mm -hmm. and. Um, but was really good. Uh, it was a really good experience, and that's something maybe we can talk about later. It's a little little different than the beehive stuff, but I mm -hmm. nowadays I'm working with a group that's uh, doing doing organizing and movement building around this concept mm -hmm. of grassroots direct action disaster relief, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. something that I've also done. And I mm -hmm. this is maybe we're going all over the place, it's but okay. um, yeah. well, yeah, go ahead, but. I, you had you had asked about uh, me joining the group, mm -hmm. the Beehive Collective, and 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 what I was doing previous to that. And actually, after I left that school in India, I tried various things, making my own way path in life, and um, you know had some success and, and a lot of not success, and <laughs> just like what what am I doing? Like um, uh, just you know trying to figure it out, and, and it, eventually. Right? Uh, what really came to be another major defining moment for me uh, was that I went to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina mm. and helped with a group called Common Ground. Mm. Um, that was a very interesting group that was founded by a former Black Panther. Oh. And then it, within the first couple weeks, because of just because of some personal connections uh, and the sort of intense moment that was mm -hmm. post-Katrina New Orleans and the, the politics around that yeah. and the like total failure of the government and uh, what ended up happening was that with Common Ground in particular there was numerous grassroots mm -hmm. community groups that mm -hmm. were that were trying to mm -hmm. to help people get back on their feet but Common Ground um, attracted uh, a, a sort of small cadre of very well-connected, very experienced anti-globalization mm -hmm. and anarchist activists. Mm -hmm. And these people brought in like thousands more. Wow. Um, and, the, and the organization grew really fast, really, um, really big. And I was part of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really was really formative mm -hmm. in my concept of organizing mm -hmm. and uh, building power from the grassroots up. And I ended up spending a little more than a year there wow. until I eventually got like totally burned out and crashed pretty hard. And then I spent a couple years back in Madison recovering and trying to figure out what am I going to do next with my life. And then uh, I found out about the Beehive Collective. Okay. And at, at, in 2008, when folks were starting the True Cost of Coal project and that... I proceeded to do that for eight years, but really in, intensively. But you were in Wisconsin. So At the just, time, you just that's right. Wind of their work via. It was like through a friend of a friend, <laughs> right, yeah. Right. And they were sort of recruiting because they mm. were starting this new project. That's so cool. Uh, and so they were really actively like searching for people who are both illustrators and storytellers, mm. and had some experience doing collaborative work mm. of any kind because mm. it's. It's the, the combination of things that we do in the Beehive Collective is pretty unique. Like, mm -hmm. it's not a skill set that most people, like, possess all of the parts of. Right. 
Um, that's why it's collective, right? That's right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you go to Maine then to join that's the right. group? That's right. Yep. Hmm. Yep. So in the summer of 2008, I I traveled to Machias, Maine, where the group is based, and... Uh, in the early days, did a lot of sort of boring but necessary um, uh, administrative yes. sort of stuff. It was my job to like put posters into tubes and send them when people ordered them from sure. the web store and things of that nature. Yeah. Got to start in the mailroom. Right? Yeah, totally. That's exactly <laughs> it. Yep. Um, and then eventually, I did some work on the True Cost of Coal project. Mm-hmm. I worked in a very very small ways on the Mesoamerica one. Um, and then most of the stuff, what I got most interested in with the Beehive Collective and I put most of my energy into was traveling and touring and doing presentations and really um, learning everything I could about concepts like popular education. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I got inspired by this because I saw it as a, a way of, a means of doing this sort of broader, like going beyond the pictures themselves and doing this sort of networking and movement building. Because the work, I mean, the work itself, like you said, it's it's supposed to be a catalyst for mm-hmm. for creating conversation, mm-hmm. right? And, but um, even though it is inviting, I can see that you need somebody there to kind of facilitate, especially yeah. when you're working with children. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, these are some pretty... There's some pretty complex mm-hmm. and it's concepts. and a lot of it is not apparent right away. Like mm-hmm. once I explain it to people, they say, "Oh, I get it." Mm-hmm. But at first, it's just a little bit mysterious. Mm-hmm. So I think that you know, with this narrative booklet that you're looking at right now, that really helps. But mm-hmm. I really think that the some people think of it as a weakness, but I think it's actually a positive thing that it requires personal interpretation because what that does is it requires of us to be super engaged with the movements and with mm-hmm. uh, individuals and groups and especially when I've been doing presentations at colleges and things of that nature uh, you know I've 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 done hundreds and hundreds of presentations booked multiple like very elaborate tours and every time I do that, I'm at least half of the colleges that host us. It's it's some small student group mm-hmm. and probably a st- individual student who's like a freshman or a, or a sophomore, and this is the first time they've ever organized an event. Mm-hmm. So part of my work became coaching them mm-hmm. on how to how to organize an event. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. you know, providing them with ready-made press releases and explaining, this is what a press release is. Yeah, yeah. You know, sure. and like... If you've and, never done it before, yep. you gotta learn. Explaining to them, like, I don't really know how it works at your school, but at most schools, mm-hmm. this is the process that you go through to get I'm funding. I'm telling you how to do Think, it. Things but, of that. Yeah. But like, often I was telling them how to do it, right? <laughs> because they didn't know. Yeah. They were excited. Yeah. They had seen a beehive presentation uh, at a festival mm-hmm. or they had seen it when they went to the School of the Americas protest in Fort Benning, Georgia, or something like that, and they and they got inspired and said, "Hey, I want to, I want to mm-hmm. get involved," mm-hmm. and this is their first entry into actually getting involved. So, um, yeah. So for me, it's 
the Beehive Collective has been exciting because it was always uh, a means to something that's even bigger than than the work itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just it's an like I said before, it's a very interesting and easy entry point mm-hmm. into something that many people uh, maybe would th- you know a sort of culture of of activism and analysis and critique that people maybe would never get involved in because because the scene because the scene is is too insular and too mysterious hypercritical and and people are like just it get turned off by it and maybe the scene is invisible to them and that if the scene that's right to them that's right you know um here in chicago we have revolution books it's Mm -hmm. a bookstore Mm -hmm. um that's like the only thing I can think of that's like a, uh, a, a storefront that's like visible, that's open nine to five. Yeah. Where you could go and pick up whatever, a book yeah. on Zapatistas or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I've been in that bookstore. I walked in and the staff wasn't like welcoming and asking if I had any questions. They were just sitting back there reading. So it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to get involved unless you have that, that gatekeeper to yeah. kind of like, you know show you the way Mm -hmm. you know and um so when you were doing these um presentations was it mostly about mesoamerica resiste or was it about the group in general that's right so so the typical presentation will bring a giant fabric banner version Mm -hmm. of the graphic so sometimes i like to call it a portable mural it's Mm -hmm. not a mural at all but it's the size of a mural Mm -hmm. Um, and that's really fun and engaging. And then we also have like a PowerPoint slideshow that blows up the details so that even if we're in a big auditorium with lots of people, everyone can see. So what we do is a sort of, it's like a 90 minute long semi-theatrical storytelling. Oh, wow. You know, the idea is to make these issues that are extremely complicated, often scary and or depressing, um, accessible and entertaining Hmm. so that we can have conversations about things that are important uh, and we can show people and how to speak about these issues and provide them with tools that help them speak about these issues Hmm. so that they can have these conversations with their friends and family Hmm. um, in a way that doesn't that like has these cute little gimmicks mm-hmm. and has these charming animal characters mm-hmm. uh, and approaches the issue kind of like from the side rather than head on mm-hmm. so that it's easier to have mm-hmm. the conversation uh, and to sustain the conversation and to get into these hard things uh, without scaring people away. It sounds very welcoming. I mean, just like the artwork itself. So I'm curious about this theatrical part of it. Like, I don't know, like if you were presenting one of the concepts in the posters like greenwashing for example Mm. you know just to throw out an example um it says a uh, kind of the explanation for it is that greenwashing is um honoring 500 years of colonialism these disguised greenwashing industry representatives steal natural resources from central america as they hustle a small sampling of biodiversity onto noah's ark and the image is like these corporate suits sitting around a board table, but they all have animal masks on. Sure. And one corporate exec, his head is like a, or he's like a 
golf. He's like a golf bag yeah. with golf clubs for yeah. a head. Yeah, representing like a tree that's yeah. been cut down. Right. There's so oil. There's water, and then mm-hmm. there's like biotech. Uh huh. Represented by DNA strands. And they're sitting around a table with a, um, a cake, and they're like literally slicing up. Yeah. Mesoamerica into pieces that they're devouring. Um, so that's like that image is actually very like quirky and sure. like absurd and right. also funny, but like terrifying. Yeah. Right. You know, the yeah. the implications mm. are heavy. Yeah. One of the struggles that I have, and I, I'm, I'm guessing other people too, is that when confronted with all the problems of globalized trade, mm. right, you just, if you try to conceptualize it all and all the interlocking parts and how you, yourself, as a Westerner, right. are also implicit in its existence, the fact that we consume so much mm. plastic and mm. gas and cheap food mm. and on and on and on, sugar, you could talk about sugar mm-hmm. and, and everything. It's so overwhelming that how do you even break into that? Right. You know? And not only that, but when you're talking about things at a global scale, they become really abstract mm-hmm. and not relatable. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we deliberately choose, or at least for the last couple we've we've deliberately chosen topics mm-hmm. that are we want to tell stories about specific people who live in specific places and are mm-hmm. dealing with very specific problems but we choose which ones to focus on based on the fact that they are like a really extreme example Mm-hmm. of something that's happening all over the world. Mm-hmm. So these emblematic. That's right. Yeah, so these specific stories become a sort of lens through which we can understand in like a really heartfelt way bigger global mm-hmm. uh concepts that if if we understand them at all most of the time are just these like abstract economic mm-hmm. Uh, things that don't actually have any connection to the real people anymore by the time we get up to that level, right? So and when you say individuals, I mean, in the in this poster, Mesoamerica Resiste, the individuals could be like a manatee right. or a crab. Right. You know? But the important thing to realize about this work and also the True Cost of Coal and the Plan Colombia graphic is that they were based on first-person research. So Mm -hmm. folks traveled to the areas Mm -hmm. where people are affected by these issues the most, and they interviewed hundreds of people and heard their stories. And then we take those hundreds of stories, bring them back to our studios, Mm -hmm. and through a really uh, deliberative, iterative Mm -hmm. process... We discuss them, retell the stories to each other over and over again (laughs) until we start to get an understanding of these archetypal characters (laughs) that combine many stories all layered together to give, to both honor the individuals and their personal stories and also to transcend them and, uh, and show these sort of patterns that are that are happening. And many process. people who are in like regions that are affected by industrial development or mountaintop removal coal mining, for example, with the true cost of coal, many of these folks, I've had experience with folks in central Appalachia mm-hmm. who have said things like, 
I always had a feeling that the problems my community and my family were facing were part of a, like, were a systemic thing, Mm -hmm. but I could, but I never understood how. And somehow with these silly cartoons, Mm -hmm. you all showed me how Oxycontin addiction is actually intimately linked Mm -hmm. with mountaintop removal coal mining. Mm -hmm. Like, I I knew it was, but Mm -hmm. I just didn't understand why. Mm -hmm. And, um... And we're able to do that by 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 sort of listening mm-hmm. and collecting all of these personal stories, but then also being these outsiders who can add a different perspective and sort of step out mm-hmm. of the right. of the day to day sort of traumatic problems that people are facing and look at them from a new angle. Widen look the at lens, them from right? this creative angle and rethink it. Um. God, that's the process is beautiful and it and I and and I almost hate to bring up like a trope that's so pervasive right now but this idea of like fake news and the idea mm-hmm. that people don't trust yeah. media they don't know how to get authentic information and um, you're just cutting out all of the noise by going direct to the source right Yes, and it's like it's important to remember that we are not delivering pure information to people. Right, it's right, highly right, right, interpreted right, right. and mm-hmm. and and biased and biased. <laughs> like and we and we never try to tell people mm-hmm. otherwise. Mm-hmm. We do not call ourselves journalists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's not our role. Mm-hmm. And also, and yet you're delivering truth. That's right. So it's interesting yep. because, like, somebody like John Stewart never called himself a journalist, but people mm-hmm. were relying on mm-hmm. him for authentic information mm-hmm. presented in parody. That's right. That's right. And we are, in many ways, um, we are because we're prioritizing telling stories, like uh, amplifying the voices of those mm-hmm. who often go ignored. That's that's like a really high priority for us because we're focused on that. Um, some folks feel like we're you know that we're that we're biased and that we're not telling the truth with a capital T. I've definitely numerous times I've had people in presentations say, "You like you're doing a bad job because you're not telling both sides of the story," and my response to that is always like. Wait, what's the other side of the story? Mm-hmm. Oh, you already know it already because it's on the news and in your history books and you've heard it a million times. Mm-hmm. Why do we need to tell that side? Mm-hmm. Like, it's been told. It's been told. Like we're, we're in it. Yeah. You know, like we're living through the consequences of the fact that that other side of the story is the only side that ever gets told. So there's no, in my opinion, there's no reason why we're obligated to have a balanced perspective or whatever nonsense people call it, right? And yet, I mean, with this particular graphic, the top side of it, the doors yes. that, that open up, like the, the top side, it is, it's an effort to encompass the kind of um, conventional, modern, uh, global capitalism that we all live with. I mean, Chiquita Banana's in there and Starbucks mm. is in there and Kool-Aid is in there mm. and... Coca-Cola yes, is in there. But it's like uncompromising critique, right? It's like yeah. if there's we don't say even one single positive thing about global capitalism or right. colonialism. But but again, 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 I think that 
you know, I was saying that I this had this formative experience at an international school and you know, at one point in my life I would have considered myself a leftist, but I don't actually nowadays. I think that left and right are really outmoded sort of uh, concepts and I really wish that we could just get over it and stop using those. It makes me think of uh, Chomsky who talks about like how ridiculous it is to call the conservatives the right because they're so far off to the right that the scale has been True. skewed. Right. So mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. What do you even call it? The alt-right, I guess, yeah. is what a yeah, label yeah. that pops up. Yeah. But that means that the center is skewed too that's right so if you're a totally, centrist then totally. what does that even mean yeah, anymore yeah, you yeah, know yeah um, that that the liberal um the liberal uh, left now is actually pretty conservative <laughs> yeah and and quite quite frankly you know the original concepts on left and right are from the uh uh emerged shortly after the french revolution hmm. and we live in a world where we haven't quite shifted over to a new paradigm but we're in the process of doing so and i think that those i think that the concepts of left and right just don't hold anymore uh, we need to come up with new new categories um that well, are, that are more relevant and it's a way to divide people sure too. I mean, certainly. you were talking about uh the the, the uh the benefit of being able to speak with somebody who's obviously got a more yeah. conservative world view. Yeah. But if we cling to those binary mm-hmm. poles, mm-hmm. how can we ever Yeah. Have conversations. Yeah, totally. Well and so and so I brought this up in reference to uh to to the the beehive posters and the fact that um our message is pretty pretty uh provocatively and some people might even say kind of extremely uh, leftist. And I often show this work to people who are not of that bent, and they have different reactions to it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're immediately critical. Sometimes what I think is more interesting is when uh, they're swayed enough or they're they're captured enough by the cute animals that they're at least willing to like have a conversation about it and mm-hmm. consider ideas that are new to them i uh i think that these are most i how do i say it i i my personal opinion is that i don't believe that the beehive collective graphics are uh the answer to all mm-hmm. of our problems. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not. We're just speculating on a lot of the solutions. We're like we're saying yeah. these are what some people are doing to try to make the world mm-hmm. better, and maybe mm-hmm. you should do that too. Mm-hmm. But also maybe there's ideas that we haven't even had yet. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the whole point of making art pieces that serve as conversation starters. Mm-hmm is because what I feel is most important is not that everyone agrees with our politics, but that we need to have more conversations Mm -hmm. about it. And we need to be more creative with our solutions. And the thing that we model by making collaborative art pieces is that I believe that if you put two heads together, you don't get twice as many good ideas, you get like 10 times as many Mm -hmm. good ideas. And if you put 10 heads together, you get like a million times as many good ideas. And that is 
that is really the message that I want to tell to people. At, 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 the, at, the, at the root of it, that's what I want people to walk out of our presentation saying, I'm inspired to do something, and maybe I don't know exactly what it is, but I do know that I need to communicate and organize with all of my neighbors and build community and build uh, a culture of loving critique mm -hmm. where we are developing together new ideas uh, of how we're going to fix these problems that um, are new problems. It's beautiful. I and mean, some of them are old problems too. Yeah. You know, colonization has been around for 500 years. Mm -hmm. We're still living in the era of colonization. Nowadays, it's just corporations instead mm -hmm. of kings. Uh, mm -hmm. You talk about the modern... Um Modern enslavement of disenfranchised people through, um, through the uh, industrialized prison system in America. Yeah, sure. For example, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and many other examples like that as well. And uh, the fact is that we are, um, there's great promise mm -hmm. in the fact that we are we have we have sort of unleashed our human potential for creativity in both cultural and scientific fields but we've also unleashed like great danger right yeah. clearly and yeah. and we we need these these new solutions mm -hmm. nothing that we've on the one hand we can learn a lot from the past and we can learn a lot especially from diverse cultures that have found ways of living uh, in, in ways that are like in harmony with their ecosystems and uh, improve the quality of life, not only for human neighbors, but like for the entire uh, ecosystem. Mm -hmm. They're not just farming for food. That's right. They're farming for all. For all, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we can learn some lessons from them, but also, uh, I, I don't think for a second that just becoming a primitivist mm -hmm. is going to solve any of our problems. Mm -hmm. um, we, need, we, we, need to, we need to take what's good from the past and find what's good in the mm -hmm. future. And um, Well, we can't, right? We actually can't. Like, even if you had this romantic notion of returning to the hills and living off the land... It's virtually impossible. There's no part of the globe that's, that's right. untouched, mm -hmm. uh, nor is our culture untouched. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was just interviewing this Irish, wonderful Irish um, garden designer, uh, Mary Reynolds, she also made the point that like we can't just be a hermit anymore. We have to be able to integrate with modern life and create new systems. Mm. And I'm looking at... Um, the uh, the poster again and one of the I guess like possible solutions is the idea of, of a beehive colony and and it's beautiful because you really use the way that bees tend to work mm. together anyway like as a novice beekeeper myself I've seen you know and many people are fascinated by bees and their ability to be selfless mm. right mm -hmm. and to work towards the common good of the hive and to to um, raise their young, you know, mm. that the bee larvae are kind of the, sure. the, the hopeful um, germ that's going to um, 
provide the future, really. Mm. Seeds of the future, you know. As the larva grows, so does their education. The newbies learn to cooperate and play together while pumping out honey with a seesaw. <laughs> Other youth share what they've learned about the colonial invasion of European stinging bees through a mural and a play. So it's it's like you're from you talking about your presentations, mm-hmm. it's like the presentations are in the piece itself. Certainly. It's all self-referential That's right. too. That's right. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah, we definitely we this piece in particular has so many layers of meaning that if I were to try to tell you every story that's in there, it would take me days, literally. And that's, um, part, of the, that's but, part of the beauty of it. But right? instead, just, but instead we, yeah, totally. But instead, when we do presentations, we boil it down to 90 minutes, mm-hmm. we cover the basic themes, we tell a few specific stories, and then we hope mm-hmm. that people take a poster home with them and continue to explore it, mm-hmm. you know, with their friends and their family and, and, and make it into this bigger conversation. It's great. Um, that... One one thing that I think is interesting about that beehive scene, which is a major, it's like one of the pr- mm-hmm. biggest scenes in that graphic, um, is that the, the basic concept is that they're all participating in what people call solidarity economies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which the simplest way to explain what that means, I like to just say that they develop a culture and when they're making products and distributing them and and sort of framing that whole system they ask the question who needs these products the most mm. rather than under our capital mm-hmm. hyper capitalist system which only asks one question which is who can pay the most mm-hmm. and how can we get the maximum mm-hmm. you know every penny out of every single uh process and it's never like does this product need to exist that's right <laughs> yeah yeah uh and so you know that's that's one of those, I think, one of the places where this, this, I- these images, this, this picture just opens up a door into a, you know, a, a, po- a different world, the possibility of a different world. That's great. It says that the um, bumblebees, mason bees, and carter bees are mapping out a solidarity, solidarity economy that is mutually beneficial. A bee on a conch shell phone, a bee on a conch cell phone, busily takes orders while others prepare to send out bundles of heirloom seeds, honey, tortillas, candles, bee houses, and books as part of a regional network that relies on local skills and goods. Mm. And again, that's that's pulling from indigenous That's right. So in, um, in, in Central America, I've heard stories also from Colombia where there are uh, annual gatherings mm-hmm. of indigenous people who have these trading fairs, mm-hmm. barter only, and no money is allowed. Mm-hmm. And they've been doing this for like thousands of years, right? And still carrying on this tradition. And nowadays it's taken on this different quality because it's a political mm-hmm. statement as well as mm-hmm. a simple mm-hmm. uh, exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's like those type of stories are really inspiring to us. And again, once again, I'm not trying to tell anyone that mm-hmm. that is the solution to all of our problems. Mm-hmm. But but let's let's think about that and other alternatives and other ideas that are different. Let's be open and, to it. And let's be open to it and mm-hmm. let's use 
these many different ways of doing things as seeds and as food and fuel for our creativity uh, to come up with the solutions that are uh, relevant. Because in each one of our places, there's no doubt that we need diverse local solutions for diverse local places. Uh, that doesn't mean there's no place for global scale mm -hmm. models. Mm -hmm. um, but we've been, right now we exist under a global regime that's so top down and hierarchical that we've gone way, way, way too far way in, in that scale. direction. Like way off the scale, right? And I it's love like the image of the um, the photocopier. The giant, oh, I also love that one. The yeah, giant yeah. photocopier that is photocopying um, land use, basically. Am I? Yeah, right? it's like photocopying the dollar, and it's uh -huh. spitting out all these different development plans. And the concept mm -hmm. of the the copy machine monster mm -hmm. is this thing. It's like so many development projects, be they uh, mega dams or mm -hmm. super highways, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. especially, and all these super highways are going to be toll highways and things of that nature. They don't exist for the people who live there in mm -hmm. these local places. They exist to benefit someone else in some other place. And they actually cut off uh, migratory That's right. species and people. And and we're seeing after after three decades of hyper development mm -hmm. in this sort of neoliberal age, we're seeing that a lot of these things aren't even benefiting the people they're supposed to benefit. Sure. Uh, and instead, basically, we're 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 realizing now in retrospect that uh, that folks have been developers have been saying, well, look at this, this. This superhighway project, this mega dam project, we did it in the U.S. Mm -hmm. It went really well. We made tons of money off of it. Mm -hmm. Surely, it's a good idea to do in every single other country all around the of course. world. I mean, I, right? I, but know, it's not <laughs> actually right. Uh, the farms, in, what is it? The industrial agriculture in Brazil apparently looks a lot like industrial agriculture does in. Here in Illinois, in India as well, same... and it's and it's and it's wreaking havoc. Oh yeah. So many of the problems that are happening around agriculture in India now are because, starting in the '70s, the national government started imposing this U.S.-style green revolution, mm -hmm. and in a place that has thin tropical subsoils, it's completely inappropriate to do monocrop fertilizer-intensive, and it's it's rapidly turning. Uh, land that's been the yeah. most productive farmland in the world for thousands of years, it's turning it into desert, like within a couple generations. So you touched on, I, I want to go back to that idea of the thousand-year-old um, bartering fair, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think those are ways that cultures can stay in touch with their ancestral origins, right? And another layer of this poster and of the work is the kind of deep time um, ancestral spiritual current right right that sort of flows through I mean in the in the graphic it literally flows yeah you know through the trees and over these um, kind of organized ant cultures yeah. and bee cultures and 
King John yeah, about there, that. There are two aspects to that mm-hmm. in the Mesoamerica graphic. One is that almost every scene includes a skeleton animal. Mm-hmm. And the skeleton animals are uh, species that have been extinct for a long time. They're from the Ice Age. They're from the, um, the Dinosaur Age, things like this. And they specifically represent ancestors. That was a request that was made by numerous people in the region. They said it's really important that you include our ancestors mm-hmm. in uh, especially in scenes depicting our culture and our traditions of direct democracy because we believe that our ancestors are still with us. It's just an, it's an important part of our religious traditions, our, our culture, and we, we acknowledge and we ask questions of our ancestors on a daily basis. So, that was, so that's just a, a very specific cultural element that was important to include. The spirit streams, which are the ghostly animals that are flying out of the tree in, in the top, there's one stream that's all air animals and one stream that's all water animals. And every one of those creatures is an endangered or recently extinct species. And they remind us... Uh, they Those animals help us to honor all who've been lost, both animals and people. They remind us how dire the situation is and that we... We really do need to do something right now mm-hmm. because we're losing more and more. Mm-hmm. There are there are some animals who, some species that were in existence when this poster project started and now no longer are. That's crazy. Uh, the golden toad. That's right. And, and also they are represented, it's not just bad news, mm-hmm. um, but they also represent the beauty Mm-hmm. of biodiversity the interconnectedness of the web of life that's right how much we st- how much we still have mm-hmm. and and how beautiful it is mm-hmm. uh, and they also are depicted bringing their life force into the scene mm-hmm. and and that sort of does kind of recall the ancestors and um, mm-hmm. and the the Perhaps you could interpret it as bringing inspiration, mm-hmm. you know, lessons learned from the past. Uh, and uh, perhaps you could also interpret it as representing the... Something I think is interesting is that so many, uh, so many people, especially in the developing world, so many people are living lives that are better mm-hmm. than their grandparents were. Mm-hmm. Depending on how you look at it, it may not be better than their ancient ancestors mm-hmm. were because, you know, they've mm-hmm. uh, went through this terrible process of colonization. And uh, but Which isn't to say that their, their lifespan um, isn't longer. Sure. Just because you live sure. longer doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that you have a better quality of life. And it's hard because what are the metrics that you're using? And, yeah. You know, so, but when people when people think about terms, you know, uh, I'm sure you and many of your listeners are familiar with the concept of seven generations, and you know that's usually thought of this as this future looking thing. But we can also sometimes people say 
let's think of about ourselves as being in the middle of seven generations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that with every action we do we're looking back three generations and looking forward three generations and understanding that we exist on this continuum mm-hmm. this sort of cyclical this cycle of generations that is that is moving through history but also kind of we do the same things over and over again right uh and so I have I have met so many people who will say I'm fighting right mm-hmm. now I'm engaged in this struggle right now uh, and I'm sacrificing mm-hmm. I'm sacrificing luxury and comfort mm-hmm. and stability I'm giving everything in my life to try to fight for a better future not only because I want I care about my children but because I'm honoring mm-hmm. my ancestors mm-hmm. because they also did that mm-hmm. my life is 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 better than theirs because they cared about me and that's and I think about them all the time right so, so it's like karma too it's yeah way, right? kind You're of sort yeah of paying that forward mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's beautiful so there's also there's always in this graphic there's a lot of fertility symbols mm-hmm. there's a lot of babies there's a lot of ancestors there's, this is yeah, a big fruit bat midwife scene. that's right yeah showed, yeah I this is my wife last night this so. is a big big uh, theme that runs throughout every scene in this graphic it's beautiful man tyler thank you so much um i was i didn't you never know if someone's going to be as articulate as the their work you know so it's just such a pleasant surprise that you're so I'm well glad. spoken i have a lot of practice I, <laughs> I can tell so i've got the, the practice the practice and you know that's that's Another one of the things that maybe this will be the last comment I make, but like that's another one of the things that I really love about this work mm-hmm. is that it helps mm-hmm. people to have these conversations uh, not only... Well, it helps people to have these conversations in multiple ways, and one of those ways is that they... Uh, they keep they get the opportunity to keep mm-hmm. coming back to the same mm-hmm. stuff and it helps people to structure how they talk about it mm-hmm. so you know i think one of the ways that this work is most effective at making change in the world is by providing other activists mm-hmm. or maybe just people who care uh, and like and 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 want to have the conversation with their friends and family and get them to care as well it provides them with a tool that they can use to help make their case and to help them get practice and to help them give structure to their arguments so that um, so that their ideas, uh, which may be their own ideas mm-hmm. and may be new interpretations that weren't even what we were originally thinking of, but it helps to give them... Uh, an extra layer of, gives, of communicative power. It gives voice. That's right. Mm-hmm. If I could put it simply, it yep. gives voice. And I know it's really helped me to articulate a lot of the things that I've been feeling about the sort of systemic problems, but also some possible solutions. And, um, you know, that's why I wanted to talk with you. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I'm excited about this work, because as a teacher, but also as just someone who 
grows things. Yeah, sure. You know, you start to realize how interconnected everything is, totally. but how you give voice to mm, it, you know. Mm, mm. And you guys are you guys are doing it. So That's a very good point. And the voice thing is very interesting because mm. it's pictures, right? Right. And and, and I, <laughs> right. I I I believe that if used properly, these pictures which have very few words are more effective mm-hmm. at storytelling and ex- explanation oh, yeah. than, say, a film, Absolutely. a documentary film. And the reason for that is because, like I alluded to before, they require us mm-hmm. to use our voices mm-hmm. to make them understood. And which means speak different languages. Which means that they... That's right. And, and they require building relationships... Mm-hmm. And having a conversation that involves questions and and detours and um, uh, sort of challenges and disagreements, they don't very have at least not very heavy-handedly deliver a specific message. Mm-hmm. Which, like so many films, um, mm-hmm. I I I I, I often <laughs> I often hate documentary films because uh. they're like. Even just the music, like they put some scary mm-hmm. music mm-hmm. behind a, a totally banal scene, and oh, this thing is scary, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it gets really heavy-handed, right? And we try to be more open. Mm-hmm. We we don't have any. We don't compromise in our in our opinions, and we don't uh, feel ashamed about being radicals. Mm-hmm. But we definitely do want to open a door and let people go where they like without pushing them into a corner no yeah absolutely yeah and it, the work does that and um and yeah thank you for the work that you do i would say can't wait to see what's um next. the the beehive collective itself is uh doesn't have doesn't have anything that's going to come out anytime soon mm-hmm. They're hosting, in Machias, they're hosting an artist residency program that involves creating lots of smaller things, uh, which is cool and exciting. But the thing that I would recommend you to check out next is there's two groups that recently made work inspired by the Beehive Collective. One is based in Spain. Yeah. The group is called Proyecte Uter, Mm. um, which is actually in Catalan, so it's spelled Mm. slightly different than Mm. in the Spanish we're used to, but... Mm. Um, Which has a lot of political... But Uter is in reference to the uterus, and Mm. it is a graphic that was made in response to a proposed Mm -hmm. legislative ban on abortion. And then it also expanded, especially after that legislation was, was defeated by, like, widespread popular opposition they expanded their scope to talk about women's and Mm. and gender and Mm. reproductive related issues like more widely and it's a very interesting graphic and another one that just was published only a couple of months ago is about fracking in pennsylvania it's called waterways wow um, and you should check out both of those. Great. They're really cool. That's one of the implicit goals, right? Is to decentralize and, and, and inspire others to do the same. So it's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Cool. Thanks. All right. Let's decentralize, demonetize, and radicalize and spread the message that the Beehive Design Collective and others is advocating for all over the planet. 
Um, thanks so much for listening. And if you like this episode, please share it with like-minded folks. You can find Farm On, the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Please contact me on Twitter at FarmonDharma. That's at FarmOn, D-H-A-R-M-A. My email is dharmaonthefarm at gmail.com. Um, as much as I would like to completely demonetize, I could use some help hosting and um, keeping this podcast afloat. So if you're interested in any kind of sponsorship, please do hit me up. Uh, future episodes of Farm On are in the works. And even though I work full time and I'm a full time dad, I do love to um, steal away some time to um, research these episodes and talk to amazing people and share them with you, the listeners. So... Until that next time, please do follow the sun and please do farm on. Thanks, folks.